Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The job you take is not that relevant. What really is, is relevant is um, who you work for mm-hmm. because your first boss at a school or just even any boss you take for that person is going to shape your career and your opportunities far more than that job description. And go work for a growing company because where there's growth, there's opportunity. And, um, and also a lot of sins are forgiven in growth environments. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Liz, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Oh, Srinivas, it is good to talk with you. Yeah. Well, you know, we had you here, uh, I think, sometime last year, and we had this really amazing conversation about uh, how to bring out the best in people as a leader, uh, which we'll link up in, in the show notes for anybody who's listening. And uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled that we got to have you back because uh, this time we get to do an even deeper dive into your work, which I find fascinating. But before we get there, I want to start with a question that I didn't ask you last time, and that is, what social group were you a part of in high school, and what impact has that had on the choices you've made with your life and your career? Well, I'm so embarrassed. I, 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 you know, I really don't want to admit this. I really want to tell you I was a stoner. You know, I was in the 420 club, or I was in drama or something. But I, I was a, I was a cheerleader. <laughs> is that lame? No, not at all. Because well, my my daughters tell me like being a cheerleader is super lame these days. But no, I was somewhere between scholar, athlete, cheerleader combination. And I, I will say. That I was, um, I was voted class clown of my high school graduating class. Okay, so were you popular in high school? I was. Okay, so I was very popular. Okay, lots of questions come from that. Um, so having, which been- is what I'm sort of embarrassed about now, <laughs> as, as like a semi mature adult, is well, that I actually was popular because it, so it makes you seem shallow. Well, it's funny because I was talking to, uh, you know, our content strategist yesterday. He said, you realize that everybody who's popular online were basically just a bunch of geeks in high school. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm like, to be honest, I think to some degree, we're all kind of compensating for the fact that we weren't cool in high school. But having been somebody who was cool in high school, um, what did you learn from that experience about navigating multiple social groups, human behavior and relationships? Oh, you know that that I, I have I've never thought about that, but I will tell you about an experience I had. In some ways, I'm I'm proud of this, 
um, I probably should just be a little bit more humble about it, but I am proud about it. I went back to my one of my high school reunions, and there was a, a woman there who, you know, I had known since middle school. And, you know, she was probably in the the drug crowd, uh-huh. sort of like on the fringe of the popular crowd, but really in the drug crowd. And this, and she pulled me aside in the interview and she said, you know, Liz, here's what I've just always loved about you is that you, you were friends with everyone, uh-huh. never above, never below anyone. And she kind of listed, rattled off the groups, you know, uh, the geeks, the cheerleaders of this and that. She said, and I, I never felt, um, looked down on uh-huh. by you and and it really it really touched me and it was certainly this was no strategy i was not some weird 16 year old girl reading books on how to like win friends and influence <laughs> people i just really do like diversity i really like people of all walks of life and um i find it interesting but it was um it was neat to go back to your high school group and have someone say like hey thanks for crossing lines yeah so as you've moved forward in your life and your career, like what impact did that end up having on um, choices you've made, the relationships that you've built and, and the work that you've done? You know, I, I, it's funny. I, I've mentioned to this my ki- to my kids a couple times. I said, you know, it's a good thing I was popular in high school because I feel absolutely zero need to be popular yeah. now. And, and it has actually has caused me to be a better parent because I don't feel like I'm trying to be hip or in with my kids or have them like me. I'm like, I have a job to do. My job is to raise you into a decent human being. And, and so I'm going to do that job even if some days I'm really unpopular. And I actually think it has made me a better manager because the same thing. I'm like, I don't really need to be liked. Uh-huh. Um, I, I really just... I want to do well. I, I want to do well by you. I want to do well by the company. I want to do well for myself. And so I don't know. I think, and, and maybe some of that comes from having been popular and you realize there's, there's no real joy in that. Yeah. 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 It, it's interesting. So I, I think that for many of us, we can understand something like that intellectually. And I think a lot about sort of, you know, the need for validation and especially in the world that we live in where there's just endless amounts of validation. Like we have a post going viral right now and I'm like, oh, this is really cool. But I know these kinds of things don't last. And I'm curious, um, how do you let go of that sort of need for validation, that feeling of wanting to be liked? Because, you know, you said that, um, you know, you're not concerned with this, but you also don't strike me as somebody who lacks empathy. Like it, it seems like it is something that you think about. Well, sure it is. And you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm realizing this is a very dangerous conversation for me to have. Because <laughs> no doubt there's somebody listening who I went to high school. Who's like, Oh, trust me, Liz, you are not that popular. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you know, it's hard. I am very driven to do good work. And and part of an indication of doing good work is that somebody appreciates your work. And so striving for excellence and being creative is all wrapped up in the eye of the beholder. So it's really hard to separate those entirely. Um, I don't know. I I think I try to get to a state where when somebody appreciates the work I do, Mm-hmm. You know, in this case, it's my ideas, my writing. Uh, how do you appreciate it but not need it? Mm-hmm. And I think you can appreciate it and um, take 
joy in it and pride in it, but not quite need it. Um, I'm actually, it's funny that you asked this now because we've got a new edition of the Multipliers book coming out. So it's coming out next week. And, you know, my team is rallying around this idea of like, oh man, we need to hit the bestseller list again. And let's, let's hit the New York Times bestseller. Let's tell everyone we want. And so I'm like, woo, yeah, let's do that. And I was just telling my, my husband today, I'm like, you know what, if that happens, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy, but I, I'm not counting on it and I don't need it. But it was me really feeling like I was in that place of, of not needing that to happen, to feel good about the piece of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I don't have any tricks on how you get there. I just know when I'm there yeah. and I know when I'm not there. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I had, had sort of the exact same experience. You know, I had this self-published book that was like just crazy successful, sold 15,000 copies. And, and the funny thing is, you know, I had a second book come out and I was like, this book is a thousand times better than the self-published book, but it didn't sell nearly as many copies. And it's funny, despite the fact that I, you know, kind of had this exact same conversation with myself, knowing that, hey, you know what, um, going to this with no expectations. I didn't realize that I had these expectations until those expectations weren't met, which was really kind of a a sort of surreal experience. Like, despite knowing this and and telling myself this, hell, I think I even wrote about it in the book. Mm -hmm. And yet when it didn't happen, I had this sort of, you know, tinge of disappointment. Yeah. Well, I was just listening to something Clay Christensen said. Clay Christensen is a Harvard Business School professor. And, you know, one of the top professors there at Harvard and and really in the world, amazing thinker. And, you know, he was, he's written this wonderful book on how will you measure your life. Mm -hmm. And for him, you know, he was able to talk about measuring his life based on his achievements and work and his prestige is such a, it's a shallow trough really to you know, my, my term there, but where he was saying he derives deep satisfaction is, is the relationships. And, you know, I have um, this deep, I, I study leadership. And so I'm always on the lookout for leaders. And I have this leaders and, and, and really what excellence looks like in, in world-class leaders. And I have this deep admiration for people who are highly accomplished, really busy people, because it's sometimes hard to be highly accomplished and not also have busyness accompany that people who are have really demanding jobs but yet can um, make themselves available for other people and be absolutely 100% in the moment for other people so I to me that's one of the indications can you back away from your work and and be available to help someone else with their work mm-hmm. yeah. Well, uh, you brought up the book, so I, I think I want to sp- I'd love to spend the rest of our, our time talking uh, about the ideas in the book. So, you know, I want to start with what what led to the discovery of this notion of multipliers and diminishers. Like, how did you come up on that idea? Well, it was really it was um, it was part of my post Oracle therapy. Truly, <laughs> you know, I so I joined. So part of it is how I joined Oracle. So Oracle, I joined Oracle back when they were this young maverick software company, and they are just doubling in size every year. And they're now this kind of Wall Street darling, but still very young, very off the radar screen. And I joined them, and they had this very clear hiring strategy: hire for raw intelligence, for um, like a freaky achievement orientation, and then nice. Nice was their third criteria. <laughs> and having worked there for 17 years, I can tell you they um, they rarely compromised on the first two, but they 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 often compromised on that third one. Yeah. And they they hired at 17 schools. 
uh, Berkeley, uh, where you did your undergraduate, was one of these schools where I went to school was not on that list of 17. So I kind of snuck into this mix. I got hired, but I didn't come from one of the 17 schools. And so I think I started my career in, in real admiration for just this brilliance that I worked around. And I'm like, wow, really, really smart, really driven people. But yet sometimes some of those really smart people don't seem to cause smarts around them. Uh-huh. And, and I watched how really smart people had a way of dumbing down everyone else around them. Like they were smart, but they sucked the, the, the life out of other people. They were like killjoys of creativity, like wet blankets on other people's ideas and intellect. And I thought it was what really, that was interesting. But what was even more interesting is I'm like, well, there's other people who are equally smart, but somehow other people get to be smart around them. Uh-huh. Like, did, and, and it was just an observation I had. And it wasn't until I had left Oracle 17 years later and was coaching an executive in tech here in Silicon Valley who, you know, Mensa level intelligence, pedigree, education, but was sucking the life out of his team. And I started working with him, trying to help him see that some leaders seem to be like multipliers to the intelligence of others. And it was in exploring this idea with him that I realized that this wasn't an observation that just one or two people needed, that it seemed to be a fairly ubiquitous problem. And so I decided to really dig in and do the research, which is why I'm probably a little bit ashamed of my cheerleader (laughs) roots, because I really do consider myself a pretty um, (laughs) rigorous researcher. Uh And and that's where it came from, just this idea that there are diminishing leaders and diminishing multipliers, uh, diminishing diminishing leaders and multiplying leaders all around us. Uh-huh. You know, one of the things that struck me was um, that despite pedigree, you managed to navigate your way into this incredibly successful organization, which is funny because I'm the exact opposite of that. Despite my pedigree, even in, with my pedigree, I could never seem to crack the door open um, in, in situations like this. And uh, I, I think my my, my situation more or less taught me that me and the corporate world were just not meant to be apparently. Uh, but I, I'm curious if you're looking at people or you're advising people who are in positions where they don't necessarily have pedigree, what advice would you give to them about how to navigate um, being the beginning of a career? Well, I, I got lucky in that I stumbled into what was for the most part, a really true meritocracy where it didn't matter. Um, so much what pedigree you brought with you, although that that does always matter. I mean, and it's not like I got my college degree out of a Cracker Jacks box or anything. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I went to a good school. I just didn't go to one of those 17 schools. Uh, But, you know, it was a meritocracy. It didn't matter if you're male or female or or Indian or, you know, uh, African. You you were given a chance to do good work. And if you didn't do good work, you were pushed aside. Um, I also got lucky in that I, uh, I stumbled into a growth environment. And, you know, I often, when people are calling, because I'm now at the point where I'm, I, it's been a long time since I was in in college and people come to me looking for career advice. Oh, like what company should I work for? You know, what job should I take? And I'm like, you know what? The job you take is not that relevant. What really is, is relevant is um, who you work for mm-hmm. because your first boss at a school 
or just even any boss you take for that person is going to shape your career and your opportunities far more than that job description. And go work for a growing company because where there's growth, there's opportunity and, um, and also a lot of sins are forgiven in growth environments. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that, you know, the boss that you have can can really shape that because, I mean, I had, you know, at this point, looking back, a lot of bad bosses and I never made a choice based on who I was working for. It was always, you know, the paycheck or the pedigree of the opportunity. Um, you know, it sounds to me, I'm guessing that if you have a boss as a diminisher, they can have a very like, like ham- hampering effect on your ability to actually grow and, and evolve in a career. Absolutely. And, you know, so it's learn to, to, to either steer away from these people or learn how to deal with them. And, and that was probably my other realization as I saw this dynamic that there were multipliers and there were diminishers. And I'm researching this and I'm just at the point where I'm publishing this book, Multipliers, which came out oh, seven years ago, seven years ago. And somebody asked me, because I'd studied all these leaders, I had written about them, like I knew their, the way they operated quite intimately. And somebody said, well, who was a diminisher to you? And I had to pause because, boy, I know a lot of diminishers, but I was trying to figure out who was really my diminisher. And I said, well, in some ways, no one, because I think I worked around so many diminishers that I learned to deal with them. And honestly, if we really want to go back to like, like my deep, dark childhood secrets (laughs) is I, I had very much of a diminisher dad. And I learned to deal with him early in life of, oh, you know what? When Sometimes when there's a bully, you've got to learn to stand up to bullies. And sometimes when people are micromanaging you in the workplace, you've got to assert yourself in ways that stop that from happening. And so not only did I see these multipliers and diminishers, I think I started to see that some people seem to be a little bit impervious to that, mm. whereas some people were a little bit more porous. Yeah. Um, took it in a little more. And so that's been my research of late is how do you, like, is diminishing inevitable or can you operate in a way that kind of keeps the diminishers at bay and maybe even creates environments where you can do your very best work? Yeah, and that raises so many questions uh, because I'm guessing there are probably people listening to this thinking to themselves, okay, I work for a diminisher. My boss is a diminisher. What the hell do I do about it? Um, you know, and, and how do I, I make sure that doesn't, you know, totally destroy my career? Because I can tell you, it's funny. I had one job. My first job out of college was so awful that everything else didn't seem all that bad in comparison. But even in positions right. where I was being diminished, I refused to speak up because I was like, okay, at least I'm not at that horrible, god awful job where, you know, I had a 20% pay cut three weeks after I started started and the CEO never gave us days off. I was like, this doesn't suck in comparison. It still sucks. But like, I look at some of the things that I was willing to tolerate, like a verbally abusive account manager who I supported and I wasn't willing to speak up. And it took me two Mm -hmm. years to speak up because of the fact my previous environment was so bad. So I'm curious, you know, one, how do people recognize that they do have bosses or managers or people who that they are working with their diminishers? And then what do they do about it? Uh, Yeah. You know, and I just, it, it, it 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 angers me and breaks my heart when I hear about someone right out of school who ends up working for a diminisher boss. Like, you know, if I get on my soapbox about this, you know, I start to think, man, there's a special place in hell reserved for bad bosses of new college graduates. Because I think these leaders have a deep 
imprint on people and it doesn't just affect the time they work in that job. Mm-hmm. I think it affects people for for a long time. You know, how do you know if you're working for a, a diminishing boss? It, it's really simple. Is when you come into work every day wanting to give a hundred percent, but you find yourself unable to do that. And I don't mean just because you had a bad day. Mm-hmm. But really where the contribution level is desired at a hundred, but it it's less than half. You know, you are probably working for a diminisher when you find yourself holding back, playing safe, um, or where you're using your intellect, second guessing, you know, does she want me to speak up or should I hold back? Should I take the lead on this? Or do I need to let her take the lead on it? When your intellect is being used in that kind of vibration back and forth, you're, you're, you're likely working in a diminishing environment or when you feel like, man, why is it around my, my boss or this colleague? I, I sort of wobble or crumble, but yet when I walk down the hall and I work with person B, I seem to be okay. In fact, I seem to be great, if not brilliant. Um, those are usually signs that you're working for a diminisher. And, he, and you either need to, to get out or figure out how to work with them mm-hmm. so that you can continue to do your best work. And that's what I've really been digging into. So I guess that raises a question I should have asked before that, which is um, if you're interviewing for a job, how do you know that you come across a potential diminisher so you could avoid this in the first place? And I'm curious, would you say that the like literally as you were saying that, my thought was, okay, now I have a new idea for a Medium article thinking the most important choice you'll ever make in your career is the one you, is choosing your first boss. You know, I think it is. I really do. In fact, I feel so strongly about it. I put something in the book called Shopping for a New Boss. Uh And um, I feel so strongly about this that if someone's like, yeah, I don't want to buy your book, Liz, but you know what? I really want this shopping guide. I don't have it up on the website yet, but if you send a note to info at thewisemangroup.com, we'll send you this little shopping guide. And because it's, here's here's what to look for. The problem is, you know, people find themselves working for diminishing leaders and they quit. Uh Well, a lot of them quit and stay, you know, so they're like, I'm just going to like comply and lay low. But people who quit often end up just going working for another diminisher, either because they're looking for a new job rather than shopping for a boss, or they don't know the signs because people are in essentially a dating relationship. Uh You know, uh, you know, if someone takes me out to lunch, I'm probably going to behave a little bit better than if they live with me for a week. You know, they might see some of my, my flat spots and, you know, the job interview is a date. Uh-huh. And and so it's it's got some of the signs, um, you know. Look, for, you know, their their talk to listen ratio. Do they ask gotcha questions? Do they ask um, follow on questions? Do they ask why? Um, you know, are they empathetic in trying to understand something or are they emphatic? And anyway, I've got like a whole checklist here of things things to look for. And I, I want to make sure that gets out to everyone yeah. who needs it. I'll get it up on the book website at some point. But uh. Running a business is hard. But your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing.
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Very cool. You know, it's funny because as you're telling that story, um, I, I couldn't help but thinking uh, about uh, Biz Stone's book, Things a Little Birdie Told Me. And he talks about this at the very beginning of the book, how that first boss that he had had a huge impact on how he, finally, he, how he eventually ended up being the co-founder of Twitter. It is. I, I was lucky in that I dropped into Oracle and I happened to get a job working for um, someone who he, he was very proud he was the oldest guy at Oracle. I was lucky. I I took a job at Oracle and I happened to work for one of the very few experienced managers at Oracle and I got a really good boss early on. And I, you know, but I had some really bad bosses along the way, but I think there's a deep imprint when you're starting your career, be very careful about who you go and work with. Like do do homework and and shop for that boss the way that you would shop for a major purchase. Mm-hmm. Like the way you would shop for a house or a car or a major appliance. Like you do your homework. You check the rankings. You check the ratings. Like go to, you know, glassdoor.com. Talk to people who work for them. Um, ask to sit in on some conference calls. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the best ways to take a job is to work as a contractor first so you can really see what you're getting into. But yeah, don't take a job shop for a boss. And if you, if anyone who is listening 
is is in a management and a leadership role and you have new college graduates, new entrants to the workforce or new re-entrants into the workforce under your care, you know, this is probably the time to be your most multiply yourself because you're likely to have a really deep imprint on this person. You know, they'll keep showing up for work, but how their early bosses react to them really shape how much of their creative mind they bring to work. Do they just get the job done or do they bring everything that they've got? Wow. So I want to ask you one other question about this, and then I want to start getting into the ideas of, of you know, multipliers and their characteristics. Um, what is the role that intuition plays in this process? Because, you know, I, I can tell you there are a number of times where I remember sitting in offices of jobs that I eventually took, but even our very first conversations, I got the feeling, I just thought to myself, I've got a bad feeling about this person. And that feeling always turned out to be spot on. Mm, I I agree. I'm highly intuitive, so I can usually tell pretty quickly, um, or that might be just masking my my judgment that I have going on. I, there are some, I think, really fast indicators. One of them I look for is I look for laughter. Mm-hmm. Are there signs of life in this office? You know, are people laughing? Are people joking? I look for people's. Um, I look for self-deprecating humor. Not contrived self-deprecating, you know, but truly someone who can laugh at themselves. I actually found when I was doing the research on multipliers and diminishers uh, on the survey, I think I had 66 items on the survey. And at the last minute, right before I started to to um, use this survey, I put sense of humor as one of the items. And one of my colleagues was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, ah, it's probably just me trying to prove to my mother that the whole class clown thing is not going to mar. Like it'd be, it'd be a scar on our family name for my entire life or something. And, and it's actually what I found is that having a sense of humor is the least correlated trait with diminishers. Wow. They're not funny. Like think about the diminishers that you've worked for and try to find one with a sense of humor. Yeah, good point. No, they don't exist. And it's not like these multiplier leaders are are clowns or comedians. They just have a way of laughing at life's foibles, like the things that go wrong. They can kind of laugh it off. They're they're not so tied up in pride and ego that they're not that they've lose their sense of humanity. Mm. Wow. You know. I know that you you actually did a deep dive into the five disciplines of multipliers and, and looked at various leaders uh, who exemplify this. Can you can you give us an overview of all those disciplines and, and can we kind of talk about each one and, and kind of characteristics and people who actually exemplify that? Yeah, we can. Um, so, the, what I studied the behavior of these leaders, their mindsets, their their behavior, and. I found they did a lot of things alike, but there are a couple things they did very differently. And the first is how they manage talent. The diminisher tends to be an empire builder. You know, they acquire resources. And the multiplier is a talent magnet. They they utilize people and they utilize people's native genius, the thing they do easily and freely. Like, you know, I'm sure you you know what your mind is built to do, what it's just going to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm 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 the the creator on our team for sure. Like, you know, the, Roger James Hamilton has this thing called the Wealth Dynamics Profile, which we had everybody on our team do, and it was like. Well, this makes a whole hell of a lot of sense as to why the operations of the business piss you off because it's not what your genius is. 
Right. And, and and let's say I were your boss. I'll have fun with that for just a minute. And I hire you. And I could like say, no, I really need you in this operational role. That's right. the job I need you. And I can either try to force that and every day is a battle. Or I can see that, you know what? Srinivas has this genius and he's going to do it whether I want him to or not. So I might as well put that to work. And I'm not going to give it some little sideline project. I'm going to put it to work. On something big and hard. So not only do we use your genius, we we grow it and stretch it. And who doesn't want to come to work in that environment? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the first is how they manage talent. The second is the kind of work environment they create. And diminishers, uh, they tend to be tyrants, not always yelling, chair throwing tyrants, but they create stress. So they could do that quite quietly, but they they exude stress, whereas the multiplier creates safety, an environment where people have the space to think, where it's safe to speak up, where it's safe for people to do big thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, The third is how they set direction, and the diminisher tends to be the Mm know-it-all. They give directives based on what they know and what they see. And the multiplier is the challenger. They invite people to explore new possibilities. They, they ask big questions. They, they create a vacuum between what can be done today and what needs to be done. You know, like a vacuum that pulls people towards something hard. Um, the fourth area is the way they make decisions. And the, the diminisher tends to be the decision maker. They make like fast inner circle decisions that end up leaving everyone confused and debating. Um, whereas the multiplier tends to be the dis, uh, the debate maker, and they on the vital decisions they are the ones that pose the question, frame the issues, and then they let people weigh in until the team reaches a sound decision. Um, and the last one is is just how they they drive for results, how they they execute and get things done and. You know, the, the diminisher tends to be a micromanager and, and they get it done, but, you know, only they get it done. And and the multiplier is an investor. They give other people ownership, but along with the ownership comes all the accountability mm-hmm. along with it. So can you give us examples uh, of leaders in each of these roles? I know you talked about some of them in the book, so I, I wanted to hear about some of those stories. Oh, I can. I can. I can. Um, so... Uh, should we one in each role? Yeah, that would be fantastic. Okay, because I'm a little bit of a jukebox of <laughs> I could talk about leaders all day long. Um, so someone who's an incredible talent magnet. You know, there's someone on um, my team in the Wiseman Group who uh, I wrote about in the book because I actually wrote about her before. Um, we hired her. She was the assistant uh, superintendent at the Los Altos School District. Her name is Alyssa Gallagher. And it's a very, very tech-savvy um, community. A lot of the parents work in tech. And the parents kind of leaned on the board and said, we want to revolutionize learning using technology. And Alyssa was the one leading this charge. Let's reinvent learning uh, with technology and radically change the the learning experience here in the Los Altos School District. And she could have figured this out all on her own. But what she did is she looked for 
someone who had a particular genius for experimentation and she found a woman named Courtney who was one of the math and science teachers and she got this group of five teachers together and said here's a budget here's technology experiment with it and so their native genius is like kicking in they take this on they they have these radically interesting experiences in the classroom but they don't leave it there they then are now so empowered that they bring the another another group of 50 and um, teachers across the district on board and soon they're training all the teachers now she could have tried to do that from the administration and she would have been dragging the teachers along with her but she put teachers in charge of this learning revolution and she cheered them on um, that's an example of a talent magnet um, Lutziab is an amazing liberator he's at Microsoft for, uh, for many years was the general manager of Microsoft learning his team said you know around Lutz you can make any mistake you want once mm. <laughs> Um, you know, you don't get to make the same mistake twice. Um, or let's see, Matt McCauley, uh, when he was CEO of Gymboree, he took over the company when they had earnings uh, per share of about 59 cents a share. He drove the company to a 5x increase in earnings per share, it took him to uh, $3.21 in four years. This is unheard of growth in earnings per share. But it began by Matt calling his team together and say, I have a mission impossible goal for us. You know, how do we go from 59 cents a share to a dollar a share this fiscal year? And he seeded a few ideas, a few like rocks to turn over. But he just said, what would we need to do to get to a dollar a share? And he positioned it as his mission impossible goal. And he set this up so that when they succeeded, they were heroes. But when they failed, they said, and they, they told me when I interviewed his team, they're like, we didn't worry about failing because if we failed, all it proved was that Matt was crazy, you know, because this was a, a mission impossible goal. You know, here's someone playing the role of a, a, a challenger um, or a debate maker. Um, one of my favorites in the book is Arjan Menerink. He's um, the chief of police in, in the Netherlands, chief of the police in this um, area right outside of Amsterdam, this large um, urban district, who instead of telling the police officers what to do, he brings them together, poses questions, and lets them debate that until they come to the most sound decisions. He was uh, given a Multiplier of the Year award. He's a phenomenal leader. Um, and then maybe a, a quick example of an investor mind at work is uh, when John Chambers, he's now retired as CEO of Cisco, but when he was fairly new as CEO and he's hiring his first vice president into the company, mm -hmm. hiring uh, a, a man named Doug Allred to come in and run customer support. And he said, Doug, when it comes to this part of the business, you get 51% of the vote and 100% of the accountability. And I just think there's nothing really clearer than that. If you want to put someone else in charge, like people are often saying, oh, you know, you're in charge. I delegate this to you. You're empowered. Go ahead. It's like you tell someone they have 51% of the vote and they'll get it really fast. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how people develop these multiplier qualities within themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a, I'm a fan of experimentation. I, I always get worried when people say, um, like I read your book and I have this huge list of things I'm going to go do. Or, <laughs> you know, there was this uh, a CEO in Guatemala ran this big conglomerate down in um, Guatemala, and he he sent me this picture and he had read the book and then he had dozens and dozens of post-it notes and they covered the all, the walls of his office and he was so excited about everything he was going to do and I'm like I pity the people who work for you right now because you are going to be a monster a total monster and you know we know what happens when we try to do a bunch of stuff you know that nothing gets done or we, we terrify people um, and you know what I would encourage people to do is find one thing that you can experiment with to be more of a multiplier um, maybe you instead of telling you ask more questions um maybe if you're prone to over contribute in meetings you take what i call the poker chip challenge and you know you go into a meeting you say i'm gonna take in four or five chips like in my head and and i'm gonna play those because the best leaders know when it's time to be big Mm -hmm. but they also know when it's time to be small and step back and create some space for other people to contribute. Or one of my favorites is just find someone on your team that you think might be underutilized and figure out their native genius. Mm-hmm. You know, just ask yourself, what does this person do easily and freely? What, what can they not help but do? What do they do better than anything else they do? What do they probably do at home? As well as at work and find that, have a conversation about it and, and put it a, a put it to use against something hard and important. Yeah. Those are a couple little entry points, things to experiment with. It, it's interesting because you know we we've brought on a new content strategist who has uh, been helping us a ton, and it, one of the most important things I think I've learned from him is you know despite being far ahead of where he's at, you know having written books and having you know run the show for years and having had a, a built a substantial platform. I realized that the whole point of bringing him on was to listen to what he had to say, even if he didn't have you know the experience we did. And as a result, we've gained significantly from that. Right. Because he brings a certain genius. And, you know, one of the things that we've also found, and it's a whole a whole other area that I have studied, is why we are often at our best when we know the very least. And, you know, there's certain prime real estate in in jobs and in careers, and we, we talked about the first boss effect, mm-hmm. but that first six months, there's a first six-month effect. When someone is new in a role, particularly if it's something that's tapping into a, a, a natural genius that they have, the first six months is actually where they're going to do their very best work. And we often think, oh, no, that's where they should kind of recede and listen and be in learning mode. Mm-hmm. Put people in contribution mode their first six months, and then when they start to settle, mix it up and maybe even give them a different role, yeah. different challenge. Yeah, it's interesting because it makes me think of the whole um, Dan Pink, you know, those three factors of drive, autonomy, purpose, and and um, I, I think it was autonomy, mastery. mastery yeah, like, mastery. And you know, I, when I look back at my career, I was like, okay, you know what? This explains why I hated and got fired from every job because every single job lacked those three components. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like carve jobs where people can do that. And, you know, 
what I've seen in, in my research um, for this idea of what I call rookie smarts is that actually when we, when we start to really get good at something, when we've developed um, a track, you know, a, a rut, we actually, you know, we think, oh, yeah, that's where we're good, where we finally achieved mastery. I think we come to really resent our work. And when we linger too long on a, a professional plateau, I mean, I actually think something starts to die inside of us. Uh-huh. You see it happen with people over and over. And when a good leader comes along and pulls them out of that comfort zone and gives them something hard to do and new to do, you just see people come alive. Yeah, you see, like it's almost like the kid in us comes to work, that joyful exuberance and actually this incredible pride of not knowing what we're doing because it's not mastery that motivates us it's the attainment of mastery yeah yeah mastery actually demotivates us i think it's a killjoy Wow. I, I've never heard it put that way, but you're right. I think that if I'd reached a point where I'm like, okay, I'm so good at this that I have nothing to learn anymore, I would probably not find it engaging. Mm, yeah. And I think we're built to learn. I mean, we are learning machines. I mean, anyone who spends a few you know, moments with kids knows that this is what we're, we're wired to do. And so much research is showing that that's the secret to longevity, to happiness in, in you know, our, our second half of our life is retaining that sponge-like joyful learner. Mm-hmm. And I think it's possible. I think it's as possible in a, the adult brain as it is in the child brain. Now, I'm sure there's some neurologists who are going to tell me about something about, you know, plasticity that that might refute that. But I don't know. The happiest people I know don't um, don't stand still very long when it comes to what they know. Yeah. So having had this perspective of, of multipliers and diminishers, you know, kind of looking at where the world is heading with, you know, this endless amount of automation, artificial intelligence, I'm curious what you think the future of work is going to look like. Um, and, and, you know, what does all this mean for us as humans? You know, I, oh goodness, I don't know. I am not much of a futurist, but I will share something that someone told me um, that was such a radical idea. We were talking about where the world is headed and automation and such. And he said, he said, I think we're going to get to a point uh, where we pay for the opportunity to work. I mean, just think about that for a second. For the, we pay for the opportunity to work. I don't know what that's going to look like, but when we automate it down to, well, we maybe only have about four or five hours of work left. You know, Tim Ferriss was right. <laughs> we are all on the four-hour work week. You know, does that mean that we can just go surfing? Because there's some joy in that. Yeah. But not enough. Sure. That, that You know, I really do. I think we were built not just to learn, we're built to work. And, you know, is, is it the movie Wally? Yeah. Where, like, everyone is miserable because they're all, everything has become so automated. Like, I actually am a big believer in just the joy of, of doing work. And I don't know. I don't know where it's all going. Um, certainly, you know, we've got to continue to up the level of, of skills and thought and the kinds of things that humans will be um, elevated to do. Uh-huh. 
or you might say relegated to do. But I think the the imperative for all of us is to not let technology create a life of ease where we don't continue to do work that is intellectually challenging and physically challenging as well. Like there's something about going out and just digging in your backyard and building a fence um, that gives, I don't know, joy. Well, I, I think that makes a really fitting end to uh, wrapping up a conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how you answer this a year later. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I, I'm, I don't know if this is what I said a year ago, but I think there is incredible power in someone who is just authentically themselves. You know, when you work with someone who knows who they are, um, they're comfortable in their own skin. They they appreciate who other people are. Like they do brilliant and powerful and unmistakable work, but it doesn't come from emulating someone else. It comes from just really embracing your own genius and your own gifts. That's what I think is unmistakable. Awesome. Well, where can people learn more about uh, you, your work, and the book? Well, let me see. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Liz Wiseman. The books are uh, multipliersbooks.com because there are three of them. And uh, rookiesmarts.com. There's that book. And then our company is thewisemangroup.com. But you know what? A Google search on any <laughs> any of those names is going to get you. Awesome. Get you somewhere. All right. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.